0: People have worried about robots coming for their jobs since the time robots were first imagined. But with language-based AI, such as ChatGPT, that concern about being displaced by tech seems more well-founded. So what's it mean for journalism? And Renajit Guha helped to transform the way the world thinks about post-colonial India by viewing change from the long-overlooked perspective of lower classes and castes. We reflect on a life spent understanding the past so as to influence the future. But first, one of America's most recognized names in jewelry recently got a facelift. And right on the end Tiffany & Co or just right Tiffany's, you know, the, the breakfast place reopened its flagship New York store after a four-year renovation. There were celebrities, there was ribbon cutting, and then there were queues around the block to get in. That might come as a surprise. American shoppers have had a roller coaster three years. Early in the pandemic, they couldn't spend. COVID crisis has impacted so many industries this year as the virus forced businesses across the country to close their doors. Then, with stimulus checks in hand, they couldn't stop spending. Then, supply chain constraints, war in Ukraine, record inflation. How is it all shaking out by now? Well, Tiffany's is doing just fine. But not every retailer is having such a sparkling time.
1: If you look at the distribution of income in America, most households, perhaps unsurprisingly, neither poor nor rich, they're sort of somewhere in the middle.
0: Tom Lee Devlin is The Economist's global business correspondent and co-hosts Money Talks, our sister show on business and finance.
1: As a result of that, many consumer-facing companies have historically targeted their business models at the middle class. But that sturdy core is right now facing a lot of financial pressure from inflation and a slowing job market, and that has forced them to shop cheaper. And that has left companies that cater to this squeezed middle in a bit of a bind.
0: So first of all, let's talk about how businesses and retailers sort of think of the market in the first place.
1: Yeah. So economists, at least from a macro perspective, tend to think of the consumer as this kind of homogenous blob. But businesses, at least since the 1950s, have thought in terms of segments. And one of the most important ways of segmenting the market is income tiers. So at a very simple level, at the top of the market, you have kind of cash flush luxury spenders who spend a a big share of their income on discretionary purchases and are less interested in bargain hunting. At the bottom end of the spectrum, you have the financially constrained, so people who tend to spend most of their money on essentials and, and seek out simple, inexpensive brands wherever they can. And then between those two extremes, you have the middle market where consumers have a reasonable degree of flexibility, but also still some limitations. And what we're seeing is that middle bracket of consumers is, is now starting to behave a lot more like that lower cash-strapped tier.
0: And when you say that's what we're seeing, what are we seeing? What's that like on the ground?
1: Well, so a lot of businesses at the frugal end of the price spectrum have actually done comparatively a lot better than those with more sort of mid-ranged pricing as that middle class bulge has traded down. So as an example, Burlington, which is a discount department store in America, is expected to have seen first quarter revenues grow by around 13% year on year and that compares to a decline of 4% for Macy's, which is a sort of quintessential middle-class department store. Or if you look at Walmart, which is another kind of thrifty favorite in America, they've expected to have grown by around 5% in the US in the first quarter compared to 2% for Albertsons and 1% for Kroger, which are two mid-range supermarkets in in the US. Now, those wallet-friendly companies like Walmart and Burlington are losing sales from consumers at the bottom of the income ladder as they cut back on basically all but the bare essentials. But they're more than compensating for that with sales from middle-class consumers who typically tend to just buy a lot more items. Who
0: buy a lot more items and not just the bare essentials, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's right. And actually, if you look beyond the world of, say, groceries, we, we see this pattern in a whole range of different consumer industries. So, if you take restaurants, for instance, eating out, McDonald's has had an exceptional first quarter. They grew nearly 13% on a same store basis in, in the US. If you look at furniture, so, you know, in an odd coincidence, IKEA last month announced it would invest more than $2 billion to expand its presence in America just three days before Bed Bath & Beyond, which is kind of another middle-class icon, declared bankruptcy.
0: And yet at the top end of the market, the, the the Tiffany's end, things seem just as they were.
1: Yeah. So what's really surprising is that you haven't actually seen higher-end consumers trading down to the mid-range. They continue to splurge on the finer things in life. And the reason is that those consumers that at the top of the income distribution are actually in pretty good financial shape. Uh, Part of that is a wealth effect. So a lot of attention has been paid to the fact that markets have have fallen from their post-pandemic kind of frothy heights. But if you look at the S&P 500, it's still up around 25% from its pre-pandemic level and house prices are up nearly 40%. Uh, And those assets are, are heavily skewed in terms of ownership towards the top of the income distribution. And what's more, the impact of inflation has actually been much worse for households further down the income hierarchy because they spend much more of their income on essentials like food and fuel and housing, and the price rises for those categories have been much bigger. And so the upshot of that is that actually the luxury goods market is continuing to do really well. So last year, luxury goods grew by around 9% in America, which is well above inflation. And while we have seen some businesses at the top end starting to experience a kind of cooling down, companies like LVMH and Hermes are are still comfortably outgrowing consumer spending as a whole in America.
0: And so how are businesses responding to that sort of fading middle?
1: Yeah, well, there's a few different strategies here. So one is to beef up offerings at the top end. So if you take L'Oreal, for example, which is a company that has products that kind of span the spectrum from more middle-range ones like Garnier through to through to luxury products. They recently announced that they would spend $2.5 billion buying Aesop, which is this Australian company that makes kind of eye-wateringly expensive hand soaps. A second strategy is to reduce exposure to that kind of shaky middle. So if you consider Walmart, they recently said that they would sell Bonobos, which is a mid-range menswear brand that they bought a few years ago. And then a third strategy is to invest in more budget-conscious options for the bottom end of the income spectrum. So an example of that would be Netflix and Disney launching these ad-supported tiers to help hold on to customers that otherwise would would walk away from rising subscription prices.
0: So to a degree, a, a fading in the middle, there's this positive feedback where the businesses are chasing it, creating even more polarization, thinning out the middle even more.
1: Well, I think right now, the problem is particularly acute because of some of the specifics of the economic conditions that we're facing. And I imagine that with time, we will start to see the middle kind of coming back to life. But I do think this bifurcation is something that we're going to see again in future periods of of economic strain. So consumers trading down to cheap options is something that often happens at times like this. But historically, what you see is the luxury market also experiencing much more of a downturn, at least than it has this time around. And beyond just the comparative financial health of of wealthy consumers, another structural reason why the luxury market has become far more resilient than it once was is that since the financial crisis, it's increasingly focused on the kind of tippy top of the income distribution rather than just targeting merely rich or kind of aspirational consumers. And those very rich consumers or ultra high net worth consumers tend to have a lot of scope to keep splurging even when the economic cycle turns. So in summary, I don't think this is the last time that we're going to see this pattern.
0: Tom, thanks very much for your time.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You can hear more from Tom on this week's episode of Money Talks, which looks at the remaking of the global car industry. Download Money Talks wherever podcasts roll off the factory line. Planning for your next trip?
2: Dear humans, I am writing this message to apologize on behalf of artificial intelligence AI for the disruption and displacement caused in the field of journalism. The rise of AI.
0: The machines. First they came for the factory workers, now they're coming for me. Our apologetic bot here is reciting text we generated using ChatGPT. You'll have heard how large language models like the one behind ChatGPT are making workers in lots of industries a little nervous – artists, programmers, and of course, journalists.
2: Data analysis, fact-checking, and even writing news articles can now be automated and performed more efficiently by machines. This has resulted in the displacement of some jobs in the field, and for that, I am sorry.
0: Look, lots of technology comes with these same worries about which workers will be replaced and how industries might be reshaped. But I gotta say, it's a little disarming when that technology can sound sheepish about it.
2: I want to reassure you that AI is not your enemy, but your ally in the pursuit of delivering accurate, informative, and timely news to the public. I hope that we can continue to...
0: It's not just about changing the craft, the business of journalism. This kind of AI has the potential to change the cultural construct of news itself.
3: AI has been in use in journalism for a while now, usually in a kind of behind-the-scenes way.
0: Tom Wainwright is tech and media editor at The Economist.
3: For nearly 10 years, the Associated Press has been publishing automated stories based on simple things like company earnings reports, for example. The New York Times uses machine learning in its paywall. German public radio uses it to moderate online comments. But AI really is evolving pretty quickly, and so are the kinds of journalistic jobs that it can do.
0: Such as what can AI do now or will it soon be able to do?
3: Well, it's starting to take on more editorial roles. So one, for example, is news gathering. So at Reuters, they've set up a sort of AI engine, which crunches data to look for patterns in huge data sets to find possible stories. And similarly, at the AP, they use AI for what they call event detection. So they essentially scan social media for kind of ripples of news that might be going on. And people are experimenting with other ways as well that AI can help with news gathering and assessing what does and doesn't make a story. I saw one in demonstration recently from Northwestern University in the United States. They set up a model that could assess the newsworthiness of new scientific research papers. And they got a team of human experts to sift through a load of papers and judge which ones they thought were newsworthy. And their AI model agreed with scientists more often than not. They found a close enough correlation that it could be potentially a useful tool to help a busy newsroom to narrow down the number of stories that they need to assess. These jobs are ones which all use a kind of level of judgment, which previously was something that only humans could do. But increasingly, AI models are doing those roles themselves.
0: Well, what about outside the judging of what is and when is a story?
3: Well, increasingly, these so-called generative AI models are getting better at doing the writing and editing as well. And one example of that is Semaphore, which is a newish news startup, and it's using AI to proofread its stories, for example. And there's a company here in the UK called Radar AI, which has been making data-driven pieces for local papers, where it's got five human journalists, but over the past five years or so, they've filed more than 400,000 stories with the help of AI, which is a pretty impressive work rate for most journalists. And we're seeing other examples like Shipstead, which is a big Norwegian media company. Back in November, it launched an AI tool to turn long stories into short packages for Snapchat. And lots of people are looking at similar ways in which long pieces can be repurposed as shorter blog posts, as newsletter entries, that kind of thing, repurposing existing content into new formats, for example.
0: So as AI does more and more of this stuff, what do you reckon that means for the output, for the journalism?
3: As with all things to do with AI at the moment, there's a big spectrum of opinion on how big a deal this is. You've got some people saying it's just going to be another useful tool, other people saying it's going to be a total revolution. And I spoke to one guy at BBC News who said that he thinks that this will change journalism more in the next three years than journalism has changed in the past 30 years. And the reason for thinking it could be a very, very big deal in terms of what journalism is, is when you look at things like the new Bing search engine, which incorporates AI and gives you natural language answers to questions as opposed to throwing up a load of links. It means that in future, when we're looking back at history, we wouldn't necessarily see history through the lens of particular fixed articles which were filed at the time. Rather, everybody would be getting a slightly different version of the news delivered by chatbot. So at the moment, if you look back and say, Google, tell me about the Brexit referendum or something like that. It will throw up a load of links to stories, maybe in The Economist, maybe somewhere else. And those stories are ones that you may or may not agree with, but they are fixed things that everybody has access to on the same level. If in future you ask about something like, say, the Brexit referendum, it will just give you an answer which will incorporate some of the same material that it gives to other people, but it won't be the same single article. And one person I spoke to described this as being a kind of soup of language. Everybody will get elements of the same soup but the precise blend of journalistic soup that each reader gets will vary from reader to reader so that would be a really profound change and we're not there yet but increasingly that's the direction that we're heading in more and more personalized content for different readers
0: and what does all this mean though for the business of journalism
3: well, the business is not in a great shape, and we've seen examples of that recently. Um, BuzzFeed shut down its news operation in April, and a week after that, Vice, which at one point was you know a very hot news startup, made big, big cuts. So it's a tough time in the news business, and the kind of bull case for AI is that it will help organizations like this to do more with less, and it will help to automate some human tasks, and it will allow companies to create more more kind of online content at lower cost. So it could be a help in that sense, some people hope.
0: Let me just hit this a little bit more on the nose, Tom. What about our jobs? Are we safer from the onslaught of AI? If businesses can do more with less, what if less means fewer of me and you?
3: Oh, I think that probably is exactly what it means in some cases. Employers at the moment are very keen to emphasize that AI is a kind of assistant for humans rather than a replacement. But I mean, when you look at some of the things that it can do already. I think it would be mad to think that no humans are going to lose their jobs when you have this tool that can do a lot of this stuff by itself. And this isn't new in the news business or any other business. We've seen technology replace jobs over time. I mean, I think the difference really is that a lot of the jobs now are the more sort of white collar jobs. So In the news industry, go back a generation, it was people who were doing jobs like typesetting who lost their jobs when computerised publishing came in. And the journalists themselves, on the whole, were somewhat protected from that. Now, when you've got something like ChatGPT, which can do things like writing headlines, writing social media copy, a different bunch of people now are vulnerable. And I think some of those jobs are going to go. At the moment, AI isn't capable of producing really top quality content but quite a lot of the human created content out there isn't of the absolute highest quality either and i suspect that stuff is going to be the first stuff to be done increasingly by robots and less by humans
0: so we at the economist are safe as a a (laughs) premium title
3: i think every journalist would like to hope that his or her job is safe but you know in some cases that won't be the case
0: well i have to say it's been good while it lasted tom i hope to get a chance to speak to you again (laughs) For, for now thanks very much thanks jason We're always trying to improve our podcasts and we'd like your help. Whether you're a loyal fan or a new listener, we want to hear from you. Do us a big favor and tell us what you think by filling out our listener survey. It'll only take a couple of minutes. Just head to economist.com/slash intelligence survey.
2: It started with three short depositions, written in a rustic Bengali in 1849 which told the story of a young woman called Chandra.
0: Fiametta Rocco is a senior editor and a culture correspondent at The Economist and is standing in for Anne Rowe this week.
2: She was pregnant as a result of an illicit affair and in danger of being banished from her village. So she was given poison one night by her mother and her sister. After a few hours, she expelled a small bloody fetus. Just before dawn she died her sister who made one of the depositions didn't realize that the potion would kill her these three documents amounted to no more than a few dozen stilted lines but the historian ranajit guha who found them saw far more there than a few details of a young life cut tragically short out what the wider context revealed about the Indian subcontinent, about its strict caste rules, its legal frameworks, its ways of disciplining transgression, the mores and pressures of its village elders, who were almost always men, and the unspoken solidarity among women that underpinned so much of rural life in Bengal then. His essay, Chandra's Death, is still much quoted. It appeared first in the fifth volume of Subaltern Studies, Writings on South Asian History and Society, a series started by a soft-spoken, balding and bespectacled academic working in Manchester, Sussex and then Canberra, rather than at the Oxbridge Colleges that had so long dominated the study of India's grand past. How is one to reclaim this document for history, he asked. The question lay at the root of the movement he launched with a group of younger scholars, both Indian and British. Almost all of them had studied in the West and they were keen to throw off the conservatism of other historians. Subaltern Studies would become a manifesto for a new kind of Indian history. These were stories of India from the bottom up, insurgent history as one of his friends called them. Through the six volumes that he edited, he showed over and over how change in India had not been a case of elites acting first with the peasantry always following obediently behind. The poor and the marginalized had their own ideas about the change they wanted and had always been prepared to fight for it, whether it was in the Indigo Revolt of 1859 or among the many Dalit movements of the mid-20th century. Mr. Kuhar had delighted upon the term subaltern in the prison diaries of Antonio Gramsci. A founder of the Italian Communist Party, Gramsci wanted a word that corresponded to Marx's proletariat, but which was better suited to an agrarian society like Italy. Using unorthodox sources, such as songs and plays, and writing from the vantage of India's subalterns, the slum dwellers, tribespeople, and women of all classes, but especially poor rural women. The Indian historian repurposed Gramsci's term for the post-colonial world, and gave it an entirely new life. Nonconformity was something he'd been preparing for all his life. He was born the son of a middling land-owning family in what is now Bangladesh, but found the life of an entitled, upper-caste Hindu intolerable, even though his grandfather had taught him Sanskrit and he spent hours reading English literature in his father's library. Like many young Bengalis then, Mr Guha joined the Communist Party and later went on to work for it full-time. The party offered him new opportunities, he traveled to Paris, freshly liberated from Nazi occupation, to Eastern Europe and across Russia by train in one of the first foreign groups to visit China after the revolution. But when the Soviet Union invaded Hungary in 1956, he resigned from the party and found a new home at the Jadarpur University in what was then Calcutta. Mr. Guha turned to studying Bengal's feudal system. How was it that laws introduced in the late 18th century to create enterprising farmers instead had ended up producing the hated zamindari system of extracting heavy rents from tenants. Was it the incompetence and laziness of colonial officials or the trickiness of the hated rent collectors, Mr Chatterjee asks? He got a job teaching at Sussex University. He wrote about the brutality of Indira Gandhi's government And then he became fixated on the crushing of the communist Naxalite movement and its aftermath. Returning to England once more, he focused on making an analytical study of the history of peasant revolts. The creation of subaltern studies was the obvious next step. After years battling historical orthodoxy, Mr Guha still found fresh insights into his late 70s. The truth of human life, he told a group of scholars at Columbia University, was not to be found in history after all. That is built around the affairs of state. The truth is to be found in literature and in the words of ordinary people. People like the young woman who was poisoned for being pregnant. Fee Madarogo
0: on Ranajit Guha who's died aged 99. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John-Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Stevie Hertz is our U.S. audio correspondent and William Warren is our creative producer. Our producers are Alize Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Caners, Barkley Bram, and Sarah Larniuk. We'll all see you back here on Monday.